Hello, everyone. I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with my co-hosts, Keely Severson, Eric Johnson. We are Exposing Mold. Today, we have Dr. Eric Dorniner. He is a licensed naturopathic physician of Roots and Branches Integrative Healthcare and is currently practicing in Louisville, Colorado. Welcome, Dr. D. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks for having me on. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you're here. I know that we have some interesting views and competing views here going on. Uh, we had a little Instagram conversation. We actually found you there. Yeah. And we just love to talk to you about your experience. Um, I'm I'm actually curious. Have you ever had your own personal mold experience? Yeah, I'm an 11352B who married a 4353 and we made an older dreaded gene son and a double dreaded gene younger son. And that's basically how I got to SIRS. Um, when I first started out in medicine, I started in hospice and the ER. So it was kind of a wild morning of trying to help people die with dignity and support and compassion and comfort. And then I'd spend the afternoons running around trying to make sure people don't die on the ambulance uh, as an emergency medical technician. And I really fell in love with emergency medicine. And the ER is incredible, but the job of the ER is to make sure you don't die today. And then they just discharge you back to your chronic illnesses. And that's where I saw a bigger hole in the system as in the healthcare system. And, and I had some personal experiences with my own health growing up. And what led me to naturopathic medicine was the therapeutic order. And the therapeutic order was getting kind of promoted by Joe Pizzorno, one of the founders of Bastyr, but was really um, refined by Dr. Jared Zeff and um, and uh, Pam Schneider. And step one is identify and treat the underlying causes, not what you have, but why you have it. And in the old school language, it was stated, remove obstacle to cure. So that was really attractive to me to figure out why, not what you have, but why you have, right? We all know on this call, you go to the doctor, you tell them your muscles hurt, and they say, you have fibromyalgia. And you say, cool, there's this thing called Google. Allergy means pain, malfibros mean muscle fibers. I just told you my muscles hurt, and you told me in Greek my muscles hurt. What am I paying you for? What is my insurance paying you for? So I pursued naturopathy because of this vehement, relentless pursuit of the underlying cause. And I was just kind of going along in life and getting some pretty big improvements year over year. And I'd bump into this mentor and that mentor. And I went past year during the golden years with Tori Hudson and Alan Gaby and Joe Pizzorno and Bill Mitchell and, and um, Lisa Alshiller and all these incredible docs that that I got to, uh, I'm a spoiled brat when it comes to uh, who, who I get mentored by. And we were getting some good results with patients. And then all of a sudden, 2013 floods hit in Boulder, Colorado. We had 16 inches of rain in one week. That's an annual Colorado front range rainfall in a week. And, you know, the, the streets turned into rivers and it was clear water at first. And then it became poopy water as the manholes literally um, were coming up from the bottom up and, and streets were full of not only water damage, but also endotoxin and patients who were getting better with us regressed. And then patients we never figured out is driving me crazy, got worse. And I had a, um, we always have interesting phlebotomists. Um, they're, they're, they're often um, pretty cool, neat, interesting people. And one of them, um, her name was Cheryl, would give me a new alternative or integrated uh, idea in medicine. Like every week, we were always gabbing about healthcare. And, and she gave me mold warriors. 
And I was just one, another one of those busy weeks. And I just threw it um, on the back burner. And then I said, we're in a semi-arid desert. You know, I was kind of taught that, you know, that dry buckle wood in the, in the hallway and just dry out in Colorado or Arizona. And I, I said, wait a second, maybe there's more to this. And I read the first two chapters of Mold Warriors at the end of a day at work. I was driving home. I couldn't stop thinking about the book. I pulled into this random Starbucks that I'd never been to, ordered a peppermint tea and told my wife, um, I'm, I'm not making it home for dinner. I think I'm figuring something out here. And that was chapter three, where Dr. Shoemaker really goes into the biochemistry of chronic inflammatory response syndrome and the unidentified bright objects and and on, on the white matter lesions and the radiologist is over here telling me it's due to a ischemic vascular disease but i have carotid ultrasounds and ebct heart scans with no calcified plaque no soft plaque you know blood pressure is normal how could this be uh, ischemia to the brain driving these white matter lesions they're not periventricular or around the ventricle of the brain where traditional ms hits and i'm like this is crazy. So we uh, we were not doing well as a family. My youngest, the double dreaded, was uh, getting um, labeled with juvenile rheumatoid arthritis, even though he was seronegative. Seronegative is he didn't have CCP autoantibodies. The, the, spe- the specific antibodies to the cartilage were not there, but they were still seeing arthritis, headaches, tummy pain, mood lability, um, fatigue, brain fog throughout the whole house, constant marital tension, the, the whole deal. And I pulled um, the Shoemaker Labs first and foremost on my own family. And to this day, my own family has some of the highest MMP9, some of the highest non-Futhan National Jewish Complement 4As, some of the highest TGF betas, undetectable MSH, so on and so forth. And it took us six months to fix our house, with hat, which had 40 isolated water damage experiences, 40 isolated. So I, I joke with people and say, I do serves by divine mandate. Um, because there were so many water damage experiences that predated the flood. We didn't even flood from the bottom up. We had one flashing on our chimney that failed and the entire north wall of the house got wet. But but the majority of these were were predating that flood. And the flood was just a thing that took like such a Captain Obvious musty smell to the home that we said, maybe this is the deal. It took us six months, $200,000 um, remediation remodel. And two weeks into well call, my four-year-old at the time, no joint pain, no tummy pain, headaches gone, mood lability gone. My older was more brain fog, fatigue, that cleared. Um, my personal, I tell people all the time, I lived a relatively charmed life and I had depression, uh, brain fog, and random suicidal ideations, unexplained. Like I love life. I'm not looking to peace out. Um, and just out of nowhere, I would feel these uh, these random like, hey, look at that balcony. Maybe you should check that out and jump off it, you know? And I was like, what the hell was that? And that all disappeared with clean building and, and well cholestyramine. And so then I called, you know, I know Eric knows Deb Wadner called Deb Wadner and, and, and signed up for, uh, for the shoemaker certification and the rest is kind of history. And then I've been working with different camps, different doctors, different places on really getting better at, uh, diagnosing, underlying causes and along my way you know we're not a mold happy clinic i am shoemaker certified but we're we're a clinic of mystery illness we're a clinic clinic of chronic unresolved illness and you could have a headache from SIRS, but you could have a headache from untreated sleep apnea so you know our clinic is dedicated to understanding multifactorial uh complexities of mystery illness well you know um I don't think I ever heard a doctor in my life say that they 
didn't dig deeper and try to find the root cause and that uh, name is just a diagnosis. So the object of the name is to serve as a starting point for further research. So if you read Mold Warriors, um, you must have seen my chapter, chapter 23, Mold and Ground Zero for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, where I'd been telling people about mold starting this syndrome for 20 years. What did you think of that? Well, you know, we... um... We help participate in Dr. Shoemaker's recent paper on uh, that preliminary states um, COVID long hauling is a SERS. And I think all the things we're finding now are just reinforcing everything you guys were finding then. And I remember, I think you were teaching at Truckee High School with the Stachybotrys. And then um, Elijah Stommel and Peter Haney, a PhD and an MD PhD out of University of New Hampshire and, and Dartmouth, now are talking about um, algal blooms and cyanobacteria and the higher clusters of ALS around Lake Tahoe. They already proved that at Lake Winnipesaukee in New Hampshire. And, um, and, and then this virus came through, right? And that's where Dr. Shoemaker was saying, hey, you'll have the genes, then you get the exposure, but then there's a priming event. And that priming event was always a cold or a flu. And what we showed in the um, lessons from SERS uh, post-COVID kind of long hauler paper is, is that people had exposure to endotoxin or actinobacteria, wa- water damage bacteria, kind of the, the, the building being a microbial stew. And they were fine. And then they got COVID, then they didn't die of COVID, and now their immune reactivity inflammatory genes were turned on. The COVID went away, but the chronic production of inflammatory cytokines persists. And it's well, I, I put I put my story in the book so that doctors who were digging deeper could hear how toxic mold started the syndrome and they could understand that chronic fatigue syndrome was actually caused by toxic mold, put the two together and tell their CFS patients. There is a connection here. Instead, they just kept handing out the name, not digging deeper. Yeah. So that's yeah. What I, why I was asking, you know, what, what your impression of that was. Yeah. Because now Dr. Shoemaker is saying things like, well, chronic fatigue syndrome is just a misdiagnosis of SIRS. No, chronic fatigue syndrome is the syndrome designed to look into it and find out what caused it and tell people. Yeah, I love that, that approach, uh, Eric, where I tell people all the time, I have no issues with labels. Sometimes for some people, they're helpful because they're um, valid. Wait, 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 wait. Syndrome, syndrome. This yeah. is an official research instrument, not a sure. label. Sure. Uh, well, well, uh, syndromes. I have no problem with syndromes because sometimes for some people, they're validating. And for other people, they, they feel like a label is where it's going with that. But when you do a diagnosis, ideally, we say chronic fatigue syndrome and then secondary two. And then we have a three to five page biochemical or physiological explanation of how everything gets there. And I think that's so important because it's myopic for us to think that ALS or Parkinson's or chronic fatigue syndrome or any of these have one single cause, you know, and we kind of got damaged by finding penicillin. It's a miracle drug, right? But then we gave penicillin for strep. The strep went away and we thought everything could be a drug for symptom phenomenon, right? And and that's where with chronic fatigue syndrome, I think we were talking about this uh, yesterday. There's three things that I think are crippling uh, the conventional doctor. And number one is time. These, these poor men and women are packed into such an extraordinary tight time and space. It's three to seven minutes with the patient. 
any medical curiosity or overachieving or wanting to help somebody is out the window because you got 39 more patients you got to get through before 6 p.m. And it's just impossible. The second is drug for symptom. And the naturopath is falling prey to that with nutraceutical for symptom, right? You don't have a turmeric deficiency. Turmeric is just a wonderful uh, immune modulating anti-inflammatory in certain situations. But why are you having inflammation? Why are you having fatigue? And I think that's the problem with what you went through with, with your medical doctors and, and probably some integrated doctors too, is that they kept saying chronic fatigue syndrome, but then there wasn't the drug. You know, we see this with fibromyalgia all the time. People just then get offered Lyrica and, and, and it's not, but why myalgia, you know? And then the third thing I think is uh, there's, there's a publication years ago that came out and said, Basically, the, the punchline is the number one thing that dictates what a conventional medical doctor does is what his peers are doing or her peers are doing. So now we're back on the footbridge in eighth grade. And if Tommy has a cigarette, I have to have a cigarette. And we're back into like a weird adult peer pressure where, God forbid, you critically think and drill down deeper and try and figure out why. We see that the most with with um, cardiology and statins, you know, where if, if, if you don't give a statin, you're either going to. Uh, feel some pressure from your peers or also be under litigious threat for standard of care. And that's where it gets kind of scary where these doctors can't take a patient like, like you coming in from Truckee and really have the time, space, basic science skills, and, and the ability to quote unquote, think out of the box as to why you have, not what you have. And, and what you have is important for things like um, honoring uh, symptoms and exhaustion and fatigue and disability and 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 helping people get the help uh, and services they need. But at the end of the day, the medical community should be gunning to solve problems and 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 understand the why of stuff. So I, I feel for what right, you- yeah. So the point is to dig deeper and find out why the name or the label, whatever you want to call it, was created. It's interesting that you brought up fibromyalgia because. Uh, back in the 1980s, it was called fibrositis. The uh, fibromyalgia term, uh, even though it existed, it was invented back in the 1970s, it hadn't come into use. In fact, the attempts to use that term failed. So it was still known as fibrositis. And Dr. Paul Cheney, the guy who started chronic fatigue syndrome by calling the CDC for help, his uh, landlord told me that he had fibrositis. And here in 1990, the uh, Muhammad Yunus and the uh, College of Rheumatology decided to update fibrositis and rename it fibromyalgia along with the tender point diagnostic. And here he simply changed the name. He started calling it fibromyalgia. It's like, great. So now that you changed the name, are you going to connect it with fibrositis and connect it with that illness that you got so many years ago? Mm. Somehow it all got lost in translation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then it's, um, I remember learning the tender points of Bastyr and I, I remember like that was so exciting. And then later I go, okay, I just did a physical exam to still validate what you have, not why you have it. And again, that's great for filling out a workman's comp form or, or helping someone with disability and playing in their language, but it doesn't get the patient restoration of their creative, productive quality of life. And yeah, and- I'm seeing the same problem with fibromyalgia. They didn't go back to the guy who created the term, look yeah. at the patients, connect the dots and find out why the name was created. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I yeah. just have a, I just have a question actually, because I'm, I'm kind of confused right now. It, it sounded like 
Dr. D, when you diagnose patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, then you do like a few page write up to explain why? Yeah. So what I do is that the patient for something like chronic fatigue syndrome, by the time they get to my clinic, someone has already given them that syndrome. Right. And then what we do is whether it's chronic fatigue or whether it's a, a migraine of nine years and they did a brain MRI and it's not a tumor, uh, whatever the whatever the deal is, we then say, OK, what's all the things that can drive fatigue? Right. What is all the things that prevent a mitochondria from manufacturing ATP, chi, prana, life force? And then you work back from there and then you use validated labs and imaging to say, is this what's corrupting the manufacturing of ATP? Is this what's corrupting the manufacturing of ATP? Is this what's corrupting the manufacturing of ATP? And that's a huge uh, laundry list, you know, and the way I organize my brain is what's the number one ingredient for physical life? It's oxygen, right? You can go a month without food, three, five days without water, uh, five minutes without oxygen. So, you know, you're screening, especially at altitude, um, you're going to screen with an overnight oximeter, look for apnea, you're going to look for pulmonary hypertension, you're going to look. No, I feel like we're going in a, I'm sorry, I'm, this, I was asking specifically about chronic fatigue syndrome, if you write papers to explain the background behind that, that's, that was the question. Uh, I'm a clinician, so I'm just going to take that symptom and I'm going to work up why the body's not making energy in a chronic fatigue with without emotional, political, or subjective bias. You know, all all things are on the on the table. Yeah, it, it's kind of clear what's going on here. And I can sort of point back to Dr. Shoemaker for this, because when he said chronic fatigue syndrome was a misdiagnosis and it's just chronic fatigue, he wasn't thinking about chronic fatigue syndrome as a syndrome, an official research instrument. We actually look into what Dr. Gary Holmes, who authored it, was baffled by and realized that, okay, this research instrument has an explanation. And if we go back to what Dr. Holmes was confused about, it was toxic mold. So when most doctors hear about chronic fatigue syndrome, they're thinking of chronic fatigue, persistent tiredness. And that really has nothing to do with with what uh, Dr. Holmes was looking at. Right. But I think, I guess you guys are um, talking about the definition of chronic fatigue syndrome, and I'm talking about graduating patients and, and, and they both are valid, you know, Well, what we're talking about is why chronic fatigue syndrome was coined and how it has to do with chronic health patients and mold and how doctors and clinicians think that there's a test to find it and there's not. Right. Yeah. And I feel like, I feel like this is just us kind of maybe saying, um, you know, for the illness that we have, there's not a perfect test to validate this. And so to have this conversation as if there is, is a little mind bending to me. Well, what I would, I would look at it differently than that. I would say I've never seen someone with chronic fatigue syndrome or um, any of these other life crippling syndromes that is single biochemical pathway. So they're all multifactorial. Well, because if the whole body is being destroyed, it's not going to be one single pathway that's destroyed. That's right. So, so I mean, obviously, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So there's, there's multiple uh, validating tests to understand multiple pathways that are culminating in one uh, unified syndrome. 
What test could I take to tell me what's happening with my body when I go in somewhere and within two inhales, I feel like I'm going to have a heart attack and my brain is swollen? Tell me one test that can diagnose that. The one that is the closest test for that would be a visual contrast sensitivity. What if, what if, so my vision testing my vision is going to tell me what I'm what's going on when I'm in somewhere and I get sick in two inhales. That doesn't make sense to me. Well, there's, this is a thirst and, and, and mold exposure when it's that quick is a disease of immunoreactivity more than it is a disease of toxicity, right? So there's, what, so what test shows that instant immunoreactivity and the exact process of the immune system that's I'm reacting? totally trying to share that and you're interrupting. Well, my, cause my vision isn't going to show me what my immune system is doing. So you're, I'm interrupting the things that don't make sense for clarity. Well, let, let me f- link the two between the immune system and your vision. No, I'm, but I, but I'm saying if I walk in a building and I take two inhales and I, my brain swells and my heart's going crazy, sitting down in that moment for a visual test is not going to tell me what's happening with my immune system. Now, if you're going to go and then backdate the visual test to like my environment because of biotoxin exposure, that still isn't saying exactly what's going on with my immune system, which I feel like further validates my point that there is not a test that exists to do that in one instant. I'd love, I'd love to share a thought. Can I finish a thought and then hear your thoughts? Sure. Go for it. Yeah. So, so basically this plagued me forever because when we were back at Bastyr and we were studying with Walter Crinian and our environmental medicine teacher, rest his soul, um, they started with devil in the dosage, right? And that is, Hey, if I pump fuel in my car, I should be fine once or twice a month. But if I'm pumping rocket fuel, um, at, at Denver international airport, that's a massive exposure and that's how I'm going to get sick. But then we saw people who would have very random uh, small chemical exposures getting very sick. So devil in the dosage is real in that no one should be around raging amounts of chemical exposure. Then we realized, hey, there's different genetic liver snips, right? So Tommy can have 10 shots of tequila, walk a straight line, do this with his nose, not slur his speech. And Tony has two shots of tequila and he's uh, dizzy and falling over and, and slurring his speech. So, so we know that clearance is is a big deal. And what comes in? Did, my- but I don't agree that that's necessarily a genetic clearance. What's going on with their lymph system or their liver? Like, how are you saying that's just genetic? Well, I'm I'm I'm, I'm layering the the multifactorial approaches of what we've discovered over the years. Yeah, but okay. well, well, I'm I'm curious about this recent SIRS conference in uh, Colorado. Let me just finish that last talk just so uh, okay, sure. can can feel validated when they have instantaneous uh, inflammatory experiences. And then the third is immunoreactivity. And, and that absolutely can be um, toxic mold. But why does someone walk by a perfume counter at Macy's and have an instant headache? What's happening there is that they're having immune reactivity to that chemical. And that is not what you want. You want your body to attach an albumin to that chemical, U.S. marshal it to your liver and get it out via liver, gallbladder, intestine, poop. And, and it's very uh, helpful to help, help people understand it's an immune response that is very quick that can create a headache near a perfume counter. Uh, and you don't have to work at the perfume counter for 20 years to, to, to react to that. 
what I was saying about the visual contrast test is retinal blood flow can be measured with a, a, a meter called a Heidelberg meter. It's a $150,000 tool, and that does not make it um, uh, very practical for patients or a healthcare office to all have $150,000 uh, Heidel, Heidelberg meters. And but, but Dr. Shoemaker got to borrow one early in his career, and that's where he showed healthy controls had 400 units of retinal blood flow to the to the eyes. Uh, your retina is just an extension of your brain. So what's happening in the eyes is absolutely um, uh, an insight of what's happening in the brain. And they went down to 200 units instantaneously. And then with treatment, they the, the sick patient went back up to 400 units and their vision could see contrast again, and a lot of their neurological symptoms would clear. So that's what I was saying with connecting the immune system with vision. Yeah, that's all really neat stuff. But, you know, most of the uh, ex-Shoemaker doctors have decided that the HLA-DR theory isn't holding up. So I was wondering what uh, Dr. Shoemaker's recent thoughts on this were. Um, I don't know if if we've gotten any recent thoughts on HLA for Dr. Shoemaker. Uh, my question about uh, HLA is with new environmental exposures, are they the same HLA or are they different HLA? Then that's something we're working to raise funding on to, to really tease out. And that's that's also where, you know, my my theory on on COVID long haulers. Um, why do two people get the exact same virus and one sneezes twice and says you're idiots for shutting down the economy and the other person's on their deathbed uh, threatening need for ventilator with pulmonary fibrosis? And, and we tell people every day, COVID uh, is a very bugger of a virus, but it's not the COVID that does the pulmonary fibrosis. It's your own innate cytokine storms burning down your lungs, clotting blood, throwing eye strokes, pulmonary embolism, neuroinflammation leading to depression and and and. Uh, anxiety and, and cognitive decline. So what is different about those people more than um, uh, diet and lifestyle? Because you'll have two different people who are both overweight, pre-diabetic inflammatory bombs, one sails through COVID and the other doesn't. And now they're, they're a long hauler. So I think it comes back to HLA. I think um, uh, chromosome six, the more I study it, the more valuable it is. 79% of Hashimoto's autoimmune thyroid patients have a specific HLA. Celiac patients have an HLA. Caucasians with rheumatoid arthritis or the HLA DRB1 asterisk 04. So I think those inflammatory response genetics are super important because they load the gun. Right. But you can go through your entire life and not have a major exposure or a major exposure with uh, getting a cold or a flu or a funky virus that comes through uh, Truckee um, or Tahoe back in the day. And, and when you look at HLA and other diseases, things like celiac don't happen just from eating gluten. In the research, it's gluten, it's low vitamin D, and then there was usually a stressful event and or a cold flu and now someone can't uh, tolerate gluten and they're making an autoimmune attack and they woke up the expression of celiac disease. Same thing with type one diabetes. Why do they, you know, I was thought- Don't you ever kind of feel like maybe um, looking at all these different HLAs is like, hey, maybe, maybe any gene can activate from a bad environment and any illness can express from a bad environment because epigenetics- 
Yeah, well, there it's it's all about epigenetics, right? So if I grew up on the Galapagos, so I'm saying, then why not focus on the environment? Why are you spend? Why are you like trying to focus on the genes of the human to point out and say it's this gene that's the problem when the environment always activates the genetics? That's what I don't understand about doctors. Is they're like they understand epigenetics, like environment can activate bad genes, but then they turn around and they're like well, we have to find this gene and we have to do this test and we have to do this diet. And it's like, that doesn't equate on acting like. Yeah. I, I, I think that's somewhat accusatory because you don't know how I practice and what I do. Well, I just heard you say that you're looking for a new HLA. So just based on what you said that you're still looking on for that, instead of like focusing on the environmental factors, you know, I think what, your information. Yeah. I think there's, there's uh the defining aspect of, of our clinic and where we have everything in common with you guys is the number one most important um, way to address CRS is step one, remove patient from biotoxin exposure. I don't even think we have that in common because we don't even call it CIRS. Well, if we, if I, I wouldn't. CIRS is like toxicity to everything. Like anything in your life can cause a problem for you. So good. It's luck. actually not, and it's immunoreactivity. So it's it's literally uh, documented by the expression of inflammatory cytokines. But what yeah, else? Yeah, but it can be from a spider bite, fisteria, long COVID now, mold, maybe actinomycetes. It's like there's no clear path to recovery when you throw 87 things in an illness name and say all these things cause this illness. But here's the path to recovery. Like that doesn't. For people who have like a scam remediation or a, a limited remediation or an unsuccessful remediation or unsuccessful testing, like just switching to the next thing in CIRS and and not figuring out if it might still be mold seems like it could really, really, really harm the patient. Yeah, I think you're totally mischaracterizing what I do. And and let me uh let me tell you well, you're I'm a CIRS doctor who's looking at genetic factors, and I feel like I've characterized that quite clearly. I'm sorry, maybe I'm misunderstanding. Let me yeah, let me listen. Yeah. So there's five peer-reviewed published nature toxins: cyanobacteria or algae blooms, seafood toxin, Fisteria sequitera, the two classics, water damage building molds, uh, Lyme tick and co-infection, and uh, recluse spider venom. And we screen in a new patient paperwork for all of those. We confirm SIRS with immunoreactivity, and we do uh, a, a babysat uh, investigation evaluation of those patients' home. And when people aren't getting better, the number one reason for that time and time and time again is they're still in exposure. And, and, and the, uh, about approximately 90% of our CIRS cases in our clinic are water damage building driven SIRS. And I spend my days, my middays, my nights, my afternoons, my evenings working on training, supporting the education of inspectors to become better inspectors, remediators to become better remediators, talking with architects about the need to build higher quality buildings, talking with people uh, like like those at Sirewall and Tinker Homes on how to help people with custom bills. If you're going to buy something, should you just gut it down to the studs and then spot remediate to, and, then, and then small particle clean to get this place tip top and create air quality palaces for our patients? Because if you don't do that, 
you're still getting kicked in the shins and not addressing the underlying cause of exposure. And, you know, I feel as a doctor, sometimes like um, you, you might feel in, in, in a country that doesn't have clean water and you're giving patients antibiotics for their, for their traveler's diarrhea when you really need a water engineer. So I spend so much unpaid time in my life basically bringing the environmental community and the healthcare community together. And per, um, per Eric's question about SIRS-X, that's what SIRS-X is, is doctors and healthcare are ultimately helpless if we don't address the buildings. And, and if you keep building flat roof schools, if you keep building uh, cheap materials that serve as mold food, we are never going to get in front of uh, this illness. Well, my understanding is that SIRS-X represents a shift from Dr. Shoemaker's focus on primarily toxic mold in buildings to actinomycetes. Yeah, it's funny you say that because the biggest complaint I got um, from participants at this year's uh, SIRSX conference was there weren't any actinobacteria talks. And I said, we'll, we'll take that into consideration. So um, I think if you look at the, um, at the, the, the conference and the speakers, it was just an incredible set of, um, of, many uh, mold-specific, SIRS-specific uh, talks, but then also some wellness tracks because we're also trying to get awareness of what toxic mold is into other parts of the healthcare community. We had my classmate, Lori Mishley, she's an ND, MPH, PhD in Parkinson's. She's tracking 3,000 Parkinson's patients on what works. And we're trying to figure out uh, the big umbrella, right? Parkinson's, even though you have DAT scans, are not very valuable. It's 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 a diagnosis of symptoms, and we're still trying to figure out. But why, you know, could toxic mold be one potential underlying cause of Parkinson's? We don't know yet. So SIRS-X is more of a collaboration of healing healthcare and and the environment and the construction practices in this country, and then to help take that globally so we can truly understand the underlying causes of, of, of these illnesses. Well, this is a debate that I had with Dr. Shoemaker pretty much from the beginning, right after he wrote Desperation Medicine, um, because he wanted to focus on the genetics and some of his testing. And I'm going, well, my focus is on the actual agent that we point at when we go into these sick buildings. If we just follow our finger, go to what people are complaining about, maybe this would be a good way to analyze what our primary irritant is. And um, I warned Dr. Shoemaker when he started to unleash his HLIDR theory that this was going to add to people trying to figure out what's wrong with them, what's wrong with their genetic makeup. And I actually refused to, to have that done. I said, I, don't, I really don't care about your genetic test. I'm, I'm more concerned about the actual thing that we are pointing at. And as a result, in Mold Warriors, Dr. Shoemaker assumed that I didn't have his dreaded genes and said, what Eric is doing, Mold avoidance, probably won't work for anybody else because he doesn't, he must not have these horrible genes that makes him so susceptible. But it turned out later that I do have those genes. Mm -hmm. So the uh, focus on the HLA-DR theory led to everybody going out and getting tested less on looking what the actual specific agent is and trying to fix themselves genetically when they could have spent their time looking at uh, this as an environmental exposure and learning avoidance strategies. 
And Dr. D, one of the reasons that I was like kind of hammering on what you were saying is because people are always like, what kind of test can I take? What kind of test can I take to show what you're saying, this mold hypersensitivity? And the bottom line is there's not one perfect test that if I walk into an environment and in two breaths, I have to run for my life because I am a mold hypersensitive. There's not a test that validates that for people, but people are so dependent on a test that they're like, they're desperately searching for doctors and then they're taking every test under the sun for any bit of information. And it seems like it's like, you know, it's slightly, it's slightly manipulative a little bit on, and I'm not, I'm not calling you manipulative. I'm saying this idea that medicine has perpetuated that there might be something not yet discovered about how the human body is reacting to toxic mold there still could thing, be things to learn, but to to incorporate this as like this all encompassing solution, I just see patients who follow that route and don't fully understand the environment just spin out incessantly for years and years. Yeah. I have both of the HLA genes and my husband has zero and we are both mold hypersensitive people. He can get a swollen forehead or lose his vision or have extreme pain with an exposure and I and I have my own set of symptoms. In fact, my family of five during our worst exposures, every single one of us had different symptoms. And I can't imagine what would have happened if I would have went to a doctor with $200,000 cash and said, hey, this is what's going on. And then we just, all of us are run through the gamut of all of these different tests. So we have to test this HLA and this one because you guys are all different and you have different reactions and different exposures and different genetics. And it's like, you know, maybe there's a more simple way to check out what's going on in their environment. And and it is a little frustrating when we talk to doctors over and over and over again. And like, especially when they come right out and say, yeah, I read mold warriors. Well, I mean, a, a medical syndrome is created for like this medical detective to come along and solve the mystery. And we're fed this lie through television on like Grey's Anatomy that our doctors are these medical detectives and they're going to come figure out this root cause and solve this medical mystery. And that's just... That's just not how it happens and, and translates in real life. And I feel like a lot of people waste a lot of money and a lot of health power and a lot of time doing the wrong thing. And I think medicine has blood on its hands in this regard because they could be guiding people in a more helpful, honest, clear-cut way instead of taking money and doing millions of dollars in testing. And also... Doctors could understand that it's their responsibility to look into a medical syndrome and solve a syndrome. Now, if we have the original prototype of chronic fatigue syndrome right in front of us so we can say, what was what was going on for chronic fatigue syndrome? And this person says there was mold in all of the buildings. To me, that illness should then like that's mold illness. Well, I you know, think, and, and uh, I even think, the term you know, CIRS and even the term CIRS and saying CFS is a misdiagnosis of CRS, I think that's manipulative because chronic fatigue syndrome was a term that was formed for a medical mystery. Nobody can then say this separate entity is that, but it was just me misdiagnosed. No, nobody could even say that because the syndrome hasn't been solved. And it's like, this is just kind of the embodiment of so many things that are like, yeah, and I think that our patients think, struggle uh, with. What I'm having trouble with right now is it feels like you're projecting a lot of your healthcare experience onto a podcast guest. 
I'm just kind of sharing with you like the general things you're a part of it. I just I just politely listened. And when I have guests on my podcast, we ask them questions, we're curious. And I want to just be super clear on what I did. I shared my experience of understanding SIRS when we went through a 2013 flood. And I was a desperate dad, desperate doctor to find people answers. To be super clear, who I am is chronic fatigue. But you just, you found the mold. You didn't go to a doctor. Thank thank you for that. Thank you for sharing your experience. It's been, it's fabulous. And, and, and in that experience, just as, as a doctor, I will tell you chronic fatigue syndrome is very similar in my thinking process to Parkinson's or to a migraine headache or to uh, fibrositis or fibromyalgia, whatever you want to. Um, uh, uh, use like symptom wise, you mean? In regards to there are different underlying causes that right, yeah, this is amazing. And I've had, I mean, don't mean to project this on you. It's sort of yeah. on the medical academic way of thinking in general because I've had the same exact debate with Stanford, and that's what they tell me. Well, chronic fatigue syndrome is multifactorial; it's the result of many different things, and it's confusing, and we don't know anything about it. And I'm going, well, actually. If you look at what Dr. Gary Holmes was baffled by, sick teachers and sick buildings, you can go right into those buildings and find out the agent that caused him to be so confused about it. It was toxic mold. Yeah. And Erica, I also wanted to share something about what you were saying. I have had a completely different experience with Dr. Richie Shoemaker. And every time I get on with a case that is a a, a little over my head, we're not cracking, um, the nut in regards to getting the patient results, because that's my love language. And, and he is always talking about the building as a primary. He is not talking about the HLA for me. He is talking about the building. He is asking, do you have clearance tests on the building? Is there an inspection on the building? Has, has, has dampness and, and water sources been understood and evaluated on the building? And my experience, and again, everyone can have their own experience with Dr. Shoemaker. Um, no, that, that was his, because that's what he was doing. In yeah. fact, he was classic for saying the sign of a sick building are sick people. Yeah. Yeah. Well, go- but but I'm sharing, like, I've been studying with, with Dr. Shoemaker for 10 years, but it still comes back to remove patient from the from biotoxin exposure and 90% of the, the, the cases in SIRS in, in his uh, recent years on consulting in, in our clinic are water damaged buildings. Of course, always and, has uh, been. And, the, and always has been. And, and I think there is one thing about HLA that I will say is helpful um, for you, Keely, is, is there's a lot of psychology in working a family through healing um, the, their symptoms, their illness, their syndromes. And when I can have a husband that doesn't have the HLA and a wife who does, and I can't get that guy on board to do um, a, uh, a remediation, it's very helpful to say, hey, you know, two people can live in the same exposure and one is sick as heck and the other is not. And one is having immunoreactivity to this exposure and the other is not. And it helps them understand like, okay, I need to have compassion, understanding, and uh, and show up for this person rather than... But you, but you uh, see a problem with Dr. Uh, Sandy Gupta in Australia just said that relationship is broken down. He's not seeing it. You know, he was a shoemaker doctor who's really leading the uh, charge in Australia. Now he's saying he's simply not able to make that correlation. 
Well, and that's, you know, with something like, let's take rheumatoid. I think you guys are, are trying to corner something a little too tight on this. Let's take rheumatoid arthritis. Let's just get off uh, that for a second. 58% of Caucasians have an HLA genetic predisposition to go into rheumatoid arthritis, anti-CCP antibodies. You're, you're attacking your own cartilage. That doesn't mean every RA case is, it has the genes. It means there's a higher predisposition for those people to get the, that illness. Right. right. So if you're counting on that susceptibility to convince your partner and all of a sudden Oh no, you must be wrong because so I don't have that where, genetic And that's where I think back to Keeley's statement on there is no one lab that defines this, right? And we learned this from urinary mycotoxins. That is a worthless test for screening or diagnosing CRS because sure. healthy controls have urinary mycotoxins, sick patients have urinary mycotoxins. No one's got a publication that shows a difference between the healthy people's levels of urinary mycotoxins and sick patients' mycotoxins. It tells you you've had exposure to mold but when a lot of people show urinary mycotoxins and they're healthy as a horse, maybe that's even a healthy response to pee out urinary mycotoxins. It could even be a good thing to find absolutely right. So, so in I, fact, we, we just said per, perhaps this whole idea that a syndrome is a um, disease in search of a cause is wrong. Maybe this is the the normal response that a normal person would have to a very toxic environment. Well, yeah, and 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 how how we do it in our clinic is someone comes with fibromyalgia and they and they fit the diagnostic criteria of what they have, and we're trying to figure out why they have, and and this has in hand with chronic fatigue syndrome. I'm sharing this because I've I've had this with fibromyalgia. I've had one patient where that fibro was severe sleep apnea. Makes total sense. You cut oxygen off from your cells. You're going to wake. One of the screenings for an apnea, uh, should I do an overnight oximeter, is morning stiffness. It's waking up. Uh, achy. And another patient with fibro was SIRS. And for you, Keely, I really um, uh, um, empathize with your experience because I'm healed from um, multiple chronic illnesses in my life. I feel good. I, I can think clearly. Um, yeah, I used um, to have I used to have POTS. I used to have MCAS. I used to not be able to tolerate anything that wasn't vegan. I've come a long way. And the only thing I've ever done was focus on understanding the strategy of mold avoidance and eliminating my exposures and trusting my body and seeing away from doctors. But I want to just point back to something that Eric just said, because he was saying maybe a chronic inflammatory response is a normal response to something poisonous. And maybe it's not something that's wrong with the body. Yeah, you know? I, I agree with you uh, uh, wholeheartedly that it's a volume question. Right. So if I have a chronic inflammatory response to COVID and my TGF beta goes through the roof and I burn down my yogic flexible lung cells and, and change them into fibrotic stiff cells that can't breathe, that is not a good response. Right. And we know that there's so many things that are in charge of immune modulating that, not just that I get exposed to toxic mold. What are my vitamin D levels? Did I concuss football or did I play uh, basketball? Do I have apnea? Do I have a swollen and adenoids from eating dairy and I cut off my oxygen at night? Um, did I have uh, untreated strep as a kid? On and on and on. There's so like, many variables that it's help. It's interesting that you say all those things because I see all of those things in relation to chronic mold exposure. So it's like, to me, that's not separate. 
like every long COVID case that I've personally screened, every single person has confirmed exposure to mold. So to me, that just suggests chronically and even you know even your ra example it's like people who have autoimmune conditions they have either hidden infection or hidden toxicity so like why that's not prioritized to be found in mainstream medicine i'll, I'll really never understand but it's like all of these i, I want to interject on that i have i work with a rheumatologist who is totally looking into those things well good so, i'm glad that you that you know no, one because say that know you know you, it's, 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 it's the it's, point it's, remains that so many of these chronic illnesses whether it's recurrent strep whether it's you know you know pick your illness swollen adenoids like you know my niece had those in mold and she had to have hers removed i had recurrent strep and mold and now we're seeing unhealing strep develop into like these inflamed kids who are on antibiotics for years and years and years. And a lot of parents are hearing, oh, well, if you have pans, pandas, maybe look into the mold, you know, but people aren't being told that exposure to the mold could be the root cause for every autoimmune disorder, for every chronic health disorder, for many pain disorders. And I love what Eric says because he says it doesn't really matter what it is. It just gets worse in mold. And I just sometimes wonder how much time, energy, and money where people are wasting trying to figure that out instead of just doing like a more simple and experimental environment to see if disagreement getting clear and actually helps them feel better. What's that? Yeah, we're not in disagreement on that at all. I, I couldn't agree more. So Michael, in, uh, in starting this new syndrome, chronic fatigue syndrome, was to simply convey this to researchers so they could come check it out. Yeah. And um, Dr. Shoemaker was actively engaged in that up until 2019 when he dropped the project and decided that actinomycetes was more important than mold and stopped talking about stachybotrys and chronic fatigue syndrome. Well, I think he, he Dr. Shoemaker could have um, communicated that better. I think where that came up for him is the nuclear atrophy we were seeing on brain MRI with neuroquan was even more severe with actinobacteria, was even more severe with endotoxin. And endotoxin is just a fancy term for poop, caca, stool, manure, doo-doo, uh, sewer gas, et cetera. And we're, we're, we're seeing that um, if people don't bring up the awareness of that, you're going to get a lot of sick patients uh, as well. So it's for me, it's not that mold isn't real. It's very, very real. Stachybotrys is violently inflammatory and will take you out. But we just have uh, a school in town here that's going through a lawsuit for a broken sewer pipe where all the teachers and students had uh, headaches, fatigue after a, a, a remodel. And the feds flew in a guy from Tulsa to evaluate the building and they stripped it and it wasn't water damage, microbial growth in this situation. It was a broken sewer pipe. Now, it could have been both. It, you could you can get sick off both, but I think Dr. Shoemaker could have uh, explained that a little bit better by saying, "Hey, actinobacteria and um, and and endotoxin are are driving severe nuclear atrophy in gray matter as well, um, just like mold was shown to atrophy the caudate that that center of the brain that does articulation, stimulation, word finding, all that good stuff." And and I don't and 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 it felt a little bit like he hip checked mold to the side. That wasn't his intention. He just was um, excited to figure out cases that weren't getting uh, figured out. Because at the end of the day, he really does care about um, human suffering and seeing the patient graduate. And 
And for you, Keely, what you were saying earlier, like um, there is a strict diagnostic criteria to separate healthy people from sick patients um, in, in diagnosing SIRS and, and in diagnosing apnea and in diagnosing reactive hypoglycemia and, and so on and so forth. But for, for you, if, if I'm working with a patient who's so plugged into their symptoms and how they react to their symptoms, that's paramount. My ultimate love language as a doctor is patient feels better, symptoms are gone, and they, their family, their loved ones, their friends are back to living a creative, productive life. So we don't do these weird, endless tests and, and now trial this and trial that. I call every single medical director of every lab we've ever used to validate um, their clinical validation of, is that a real test or is it frivolous and a waste of the patient's time, money, and energy? And I'm not talking about CLIA certified where it just shows there's no flies or dog do on the counter of their, their lab. Is there real clinical validation that can say, yes, this is happening or no, it isn't happening. And, and I also want to make sure you know, I don't think we know everything. We are just <laughs> vehemently trying to drill down further so that we can help graduate every single chronically ill patient we, we come into. And the biggest albatross, the biggest thing that slows that graduation and restoration of quality of life is the freaking building. Every time it's the building, it's the building, it's the building, it's building, it's building, it's building, it's building, right? And, and, and everything else that you do um, doesn't fall into place uh, seamlessly if you don't address the building. Well, Dr. Jill Carnahan, who uh, is an ex-shoemaker doctor and now working with Change the Air Foundation, just threw a really interesting monkey wrench into the works. She's in your area in Colorado. And uh, she said that her the inflammatory markers increased in her SERS patients worse from wildfire smoke, severe wildfire smoke, than they did from toxic mold. Yeah. So I would say on uh, that's an anecdote for me. We had a big uh, round of elevated TGF betas. Um, I'm in Louisville. Our clinic could have burned down. The the fires was literally on the on the other side of the street. And um, we my kids go to go to high school. I have 14 16 year old kids. I can't tell you how many friends and families we know who are still living in hotels two years later from having their house burned down. And the atrocity of battling insurance to get coverage, replacing uh, even for my organized patients who showed a receipt for a brand new $90 Patagonia shirt, the insurance saying, here's a $10 uh, fleece from Walmart to replace that. that. That's a microcosm of the headaches these poor folks are going through. It, for SIRS X, May, uh, May 2024 in Frisco, uh, Texas, we are having a hygienist who specializes in fire, fire damage. Uh, fire toxicity. And there is so much work we need to do in regards to um, inflammatory responses to to fire smoke and and the toxins they leave behind. You're absolutely right. Well, like I say, I don't have a lab. I'm not a researcher. I'm just a survivor of a famous incident and somebody who was in a position to assist in starting a very controversial syndrome. And to this day, the researchers, the leaders, the Institutes dedicated to trying to solve chronic fatigue syndrome are still not engaging with this evidence. Yeah, that's a problem. And that is a, a complicated story, right? Of money, politics, personalities, egos. At the end of the day, I'm a clinician. 
And if we're not seeing patients get better uh, in a statistically significant way, I, I would go do something else with my life. The problem with this illness when people are not progressing is the freaking building. And, and the, the problem with uh, society is not a Republican problem, not a Democrat problem, an integrity problem. And you're going to see that uh, ragingly in construction practices. Right. It's about bottom lines. And for an average contractor, their um, margin is 10 percent on a development project. So if they do a 10 million dollar project, they're looking to do a million dollars. One mistake, you flush a million dollars down the toilet. So no one wants to take accountability. No one wants to take responsibility. No one wants to build things right the first time. And we need to bring pride and integrity back into construction practices where we slow it down. We use better materials. We do things right the first time. And, and my dream is to create almost like an AmeriCorps that can go in and take care of uh, churches and schools and buildings. Like how many people are going to AA meetings, feeling spiritually and emotionally uplifted and neuroinflamed from church basement and then uh, alcohol and, 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 and opiates and, and all kinds of drugs look better and attractive because they're under neuroinflammation. Right. So, so we have a, a crisis that that is bigger than COVID when it comes to our buildings in this country, but it's not um, fatal. Meaning, SERS patients, uh, mold toxicity patients, like you, Keely, what you go through, they don't usually die prematurely. They live long, zombified, intense, inflamed lives. So it's yeah, not, we're tortured permanently. <laughs> you're, yeah, so it's not like. Um, Wait, do you have residual sensitivities? Like, do you ever do you ever have reactions to your patients, or do you ever go into a bad building and have reactions? Like, are you are you a hypersensitive? Well, I definitely will get um, uh, depression. Yeah. Is my biggest symptom off of uh, a building exposure, but it can. Uh, I can I can mitigate it pretty quickly going back to my home, uh, taking a shower, uh, washing my clothes, staying on. Wow, you have a decon protocol in place. That's, that's well, I'm impressive. friends with I'm friends with Lori Rossi, and she is my favorite surge coach on the planet because she has a stiff backbone. Oh, she, did she copy Eric's decon protocol that he learned from bio warfare training? I don't know. We'd have to ask. Yeah, Laura. That's, where the, that's where the decon protocol comes from. It comes from Eric's bio warfare training. It was published a long time ago. So that must have been where she got it. What I can say about Laura, is she's just very sincere about symptom tracking, making sure you're knowing uh, your buildings. And she's very sincere about cross-contamination. And whenever we have a complicated case that's not proceeding, um, Lori is who figures out, nope, you thought you were uh, um, uh, avoiding uh, contamination. You were not. And so for me, I that a lot, actually, that's really that? common. Yeah. Contamination so, and going through it or people taking it with them is yeah. as problematic as a hidden exposure or failed remediation. Yeah. So her, her book, Mold Illness, Surviving and Thriving, the cross-contamination uh, uh, section, the packing to move or clean because so many people get attached. Uh, does she, does she credit like any earlier people that she learned from or does she like pretend that she just made that up all herself? You would have to ask her, you know. My, I'm just wondering because you read, did you read the book? Her book? Yeah. Uh, years ago. It's been out okay. since 2018. 
It's you know, just my, frustrating when doctors are like, they take information and then they act like they own it. No one ever points back to say, oh, we learned this well, awesome protocol uh, from Eric. We yeah, should probably a, look at this. That's a crisis in academia all, all around. Like if I tell you something about the heart scan, I'm going to tell you I learned that from Dr. Bill Blanchett. He's taught me everything I know about preventing heart attack and stroke, right? If I talk about neuroendocrine immune model, I'm going to tell you Dr. Discarazzi told me. And then, and then there's people who I disagree with who are mentors on certain subjects, but I, I still learned a lot. And giving credit is, is an issue of integrity. You could ask Lori that herself, but, but what I was um, sharing is that when people aren't getting better, they're not taking those steps in earnest. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. And for me personally... And I don't do healthcare narcissism. I don't project my experience onto the world. I will tell you what works for me is being on well-called cholestyramine, making sure that I'm having bowel movements. But do you think that that would, do you think, and and the reason I'm asking is because you're mentioning this first. Do you think that well-called cholestyramine would have helped if you hadn't did what you did to your house? Because I feel like. No, it's step two. Step one. Right. Yeah. Because I feel like step one is always. Yeah. Now, we'll use well-called cholestyramine to take the edge off. If you have someone who has like three months left on a job before they collect Social Security, and this happened with a with a dental hygienist who was working in a dental office for 20 years, there was literally active water in the closet where she would hang her jacket. She tried to explain uh, mold exposure to her, her boss, and he bought her uh, a cute little filter for her, yeah, her hygiene, yeah. hygiene station. She yeah. got three months left. Would would we do high dose fish oil and, and local cholestyramine to finish out her? I really understand. Her Sometimes you just have to meet the patient where they're at and like yeah, not financially. Going to. Uh, but but the other thing is, you know, you, local cholestyramine is a garbage truck that comes out your butt the same way it went into your mouth, and it's only as good as the bile ejection fraction you have. So a lot of people have swampy gallbladders that do not eject bile and bile acids drive motility. So if if we don't have a gallbladder that's working, if we don't have a patient that's pooping, we're working on fixing that before we we'll Oh yeah, because that's so constipating. But but it's constipating because organic chemistry is what we do, not alchemy, right? And we know that bile acids drive motility. So if you're a bile acid sequestrant, you risk slowing motility unless you get more bile into the small intestine. And that's where integrated medicine, naturopathic medicine, those cholagog herbs can really help. But we don't pretend that activated charcoal is coatenary ammonia, right? We don't do alchemy. We do organic uh, chemistry. And and for me personally, back to like how I deal with exposure, because if I didn't have these tools, I, I can go suicidal and hyperdepressed again, despite living a really high quality life. And that is uh, building avoidance. But I'm going to go through Denver International Airport, and it's an armpit of uh, open rooms and remodels. And we see two places from DIA, and we know the areas it's been flooded. I have some inside trade secrets on that building, so I know to not walk through this door, but walk through that door. Um, but but I'm going to. Can I tell you something about an exposure I had last year? Well, well, just let me let me finish the other thing we do, and then we. I will do, if I know I'm getting into exposure, I will um, have my provider put me back on, uh, ask if I can go back on vasoactive intestinal peptide to suppress uh, immune responses as well. So so for me, it's uh, the best avoidance I can, but if there's a funeral I have to go to, I'm not going to miss my mom's funeral 
Um, because in a mole pit, I'm actually going to take that hit so that once or twice in my lifetime, I can be there with my uh, dead parent and, and deal with that. But I'm going to be on VIP hyperdosing cholestyramine while call hyper pooping to make sure um, things are coming out as, as quick as possible. And that, that's what works for me. It sounds like with your efforts to avoid bad stuff that you react to and your intention to decon and, you know, maybe take things to help that process along when you have an exposure, it sounds like you're a mold avoider. <laughs> you're one of us, I think. Yeah, of course. I have, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a recovered SERS patient. I don't want to go back to that brain fog fatigue. Well, and, well and I mean, so, so, I mean, if you're a mold hypersensitive, do you ever really fully recover? Because if you're going to relapse with an exposure, then don't we have a relapsing illness that we have to continuously monitor? Yeah, I, I, I tell patients all the time, SIRS is a treatable illness until your next major exposure, but that major exposure has to trigger immunoreactivity, right? And that is a threshold that is different for every human being on this planet. That's why we teach the mold avoidance strategy and what the stages are and what it, it's really a strategy that emphasizes understanding cross-contamination, residual source points, and getting clear and then knowing what your specific reactions are. Because my 14-year-old might go into an exposure and get a bloody nose. I'm going to go into an exposure and probably start screaming or like you, I'm going to get immediately depressed, which happens to me also. Um, and so since every single person can have so many diverse symptoms, it's I, I personally feel like it's so, so, so important for people to, one, realize how those symptoms can all be connected to an exposure where it can really literally be anything that just gets worse. And two, realizing, OK, if I start to sense this, what are what are my steps to to one, get clear of it, to understand the environment? What are my options for treating and and implementing that as a strategy? Um is honestly, it's all it's all that I did to regain uh, my health, and I I'm and, I just was in another exposure. What to everybody it. needs to focus on when we diagnose them with SIRS, and you guys can call it other things, but if we do SIRS uh, water damage building molds, then we we have to have um, awareness around the underlying cause. What's kicking you in the shins is the exposure, and I I couldn't agree more. I think one of the things that can happen in this community is then they can layer on an anxiety on top of that. And that's where. Oh, well, that's interesting because anxiety is actually one of my warnings. Yeah. Like if and, I start and, feeling and my heart yes. or feel anxious at all. And I feel like that is such a dangerous trap. We talk about this all the time. That's really such a dangerous trap to like, think of it as separate from the illness, because when it's an exposure symptom, if you it's, it's warning you that something dangerous is near you. So you yeah. shouldn't try to silence that alarm with like a brain retraining exercise. Like so many well, people are doing. Well, and again, um, the, the not doing healthcare narcissism where I'm not projecting my service experience onto the world the way I experience depression, you're absolutely right. People will, will, will feel anxiety in the exact same way as not a, I'm anxious about this building. I'm actually having a neuroinflammatory uh, experience. No, it's anxiety. a real response. Yeah, no, it's, it's not response. like in their head or I'm yeah. nervous, even so if that's we, what it looks like, or if that's yeah, what it so like. we, when people we get had, like that. Yeah. So we had people in the DNRS community, the Gupta community, the, the Joe Dispenza community, who who will say, you know, hey, we can just train 
our our brain out of this reactivity. So we put that to the test, and it was only with a couple of patients. And because um, I'm not an us and them guy, there's value in in a lot of uh, things for this community. And what we found is that the 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 patients would still spike their predominant original cytokine, right? So some people really elevate non-Futhan national Jewish run C4A. Some people spike MP9 more. Some people spike TGF beta more. This one patient in particular, he really spikes a C4A with exposure. And with DNRS, he went into a building that historically spiked to C4A and his C4A still spiked. But with the DNRS, he didn't freak out about it. He was able to say in kind of a monotone, yeah, I still don't do well in this building and I should probably get out of here. And in the past, you'd go, this building, this building, this building. And I found value in anything that helps him feel more cool, calm, and collected in dealing with exposure. But you still have to deal with exposure. But they're doing two different things, right? One is helping you feel cool, calm, and collected, capable. And we tell patients all the time, hey, if panic would heal things, we would endorse it, right? But freaking out doesn't clean up a building. So it sounds like what you're saying is um, the body is still suffering the consequence of the exposure, but this practice can keep the person the more calm and functional. In my experience was the same because in my first exposure, I did not know that I was exposed, but I knew something was like wrong with me. <laughs> and I started doing Wim Hof breathing and cold showers. And it would take me out of this like disoriented, rambling, panic, stress state. And it would like, it would, I would feel more present and connected in those moments. But I also very specifically feel like I would have died if I would have stayed in that building because I was still having chronic infections that weren't responding to medicine. And I was still having signs that pointed to stroke risk in Chinese medicine present as my symptoms. And so that's why I specifically hammer on DNRS. And I think that you actually just made my case more solid because you just explained the body's still going to freak out, but the personality might feel more calm, which is like dangerously eliminating people's warning signs to get the hell out. Because what if that anxiety and the depression is your warning sign to get the hell out of somewhere, you know, and we don't really want to be quieting what the body's meant to do when the body's taking care of us to warn us about something. Why silence that? Well, and that's where you guys in our clinic, you can coach people like, uh, remember, if you smell musty or you got your tinnitus going or your nose bleeding, still want to deal with getting out of that building. But the the amount of stress I see put on people when they panic, put on their marriage, um, uh, having their kids grow up to just live in constant fear is pretty intense too. So, so it's this, this, this phrase we have in our clinic is empowered, not panicked. Like you have to deal with that building, but uh, you want to keep a brain as functional as possible. And I think the Wim Hof is, is an interesting uh, plug because 
his paper, you know, they injected him with bacterial endotoxin from E. coli. So they took a lipopolysaccharide and endotoxin and injected it into him. And what that should do is make you vomit, give you a temperature, and radically spike interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha, two notorious inflammatory cytokines in things like anxiety, depression, migraines, Crohn's, ulcerative colitis, psoriasis, eczema. These are like the classics. Uh, um, Remicade and all of our biologics target TNF and, and IL-6. And for Wim, those didn't rise. He didn't get a uh, temperature uh, increase and he didn't get a headache. Now he could lie about having a headache and, and not getting one because he wants his work to be uh, proven or something like that, but he can't outsmart a laboratory thermometer and pre and post cytokine testing. So then they repeated that with 24 young adults and they injected all of them with bacterial endotoxin, lipopolysaccharide from E. coli, and 12 got trained in the Wim Hof breathing and 12 did not. And they um, and they they didn't do it for two years or two months, did it for two weeks, Wim Hof training. And the the studies, the, the, the participants who did the Wim Hof breathing did not get headache, did not get um, nausea. I think for that to cross-translate into the real world, they'd have to be injected, like, I mean, how would that you know, one injection doesn't really like translate into like, well, you're just, if I can say something about this, the uh, mast cell activation disorder experts say that there are receptors for stress enzymes so that if you go into a hyperactive fight or flight response, you will activate the immune system. Yeah. So there's sort of a gray area here where your stress, your emotional response will affect the immune system. But the problem is the brain retrainers say this will address the core pathophysiology when apparently it's not really doing much about the exposure and it's not getting us to the core of what that exposure really is. Yep. I, I, yeah. And again, what, what you're sharing, um, Keely, is that uh, it worked for you as a tool to deal with the situation. And no, I, but, but I'm saying like for an hour at a time, I'd feel clear and then I would get sick again. So I'm yeah, saying yeah. like it tricked me into thinking that I was getting relief, but I was so dangerously exposed that it probably prevented me from leaving sooner because I thought that I was doing better than I was for an hour or two after this practice. And I still was basically completely non-functional in kidney failure and on my way actually to a complete um, kidney blockage via multiple stones in my ureters that I had to take herbal medicine for to clear out myself to avoid a uh, kidney surgery. So like, that's the, that's actually what happened. That's the full thing that happened doing that breathing. I went into kidney failure and then my bladder became hundred percent blocked. And then I couldn't pee and I filled with water and then I had to treat myself with stones. So that's, that's like the result of staying in mold and doing that, even though I was like emotionally more clear for an hour after the practice. So right. that's, so, that's so a big you, risk. I you think could use it with what you, what you know, at this point in your life about exposure, you could use it as a modulation tool while still sincerely saying, I got to get out of this building. But I don't need a modulation tool when I'm not exposed because I don't have those emotional symptoms when I'm not exposed. And I was using something else to quiet my heart pain. And it actually allowed me to miss another exposure. Like I was, 
I was silencing my number one symptom to the point that I got up to my neck in another exposure just in the last six months that I'm just on the tail end of. I just got out of it like two weeks ago, most of it. <laughs> yeah, I think you're, it, it, it's intense that, you know, th- this um, mold toxicity and, and, and immunoreactivity is a spectrum, right? And your symptoms are so capped and obvious and severe um, even when you can't see and visualize, and that is obviously a curse, but it's also a gift, right? Because when you're, when you're in a building, you know, a lot of our patients, uh, I can, I can, it's for me with the depression, it's, I feel like, oh, I'm going to be depressed, but I can hang in there like at a funeral or a wake. And then I really get, uh, hit hard two, three days later, if I'm not pounding, um, quaternary ammonium. Oh, so you're more of a delayed reactor. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm an instant reactor. And again, it's like, it's, it's in the woo woo side of me. It, I I can kind of feel like, um, oh, this building, you know, it's, it's, it's like, uh, uh, a sixth sense that I think you, you all, um, well, it's probably that feeling of dread and ick when you're, when you walk into somewhere and it doesn't feel right. Like you can feel it. Like it literally will make you That's the name of an article that I put in the British medical journal in 2005. The depression is the sixth sense. It's the Mm. body's attempt to apprise you of a dangerous situation so you can take appropriate evasive action. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and it takes a training, right. To say, is there anything else in my life that's really that bad? And again, sometimes there is, right? Sometimes you can lose sure. a death of a parent or a friend gets hit by a drunk driver or something dramatic happens. But I think rep after rep after rep, you realize there's really nothing going on too bad aside from this uh, building. And 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 that's a, that's a great way to explain it, Eric. Well, I got to run and see a patient. Um, but I've really enjoyed hanging out with you guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for Thanks, a very Dr. honest D. and frank discussion of the issues. Appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit, and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support, and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit exposingmold.org for more information.